here and a lecturer here at the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, I'd like to introduce our speaker today, Professor Alan Kruger. Alan is the then time Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University, as well as the Director of the Industrial Relations Section and Survey Research Center, which makes him my boss, not the boss, my boss. Put that out. Alan is also the editor of the Journal of Economic Perspective and writes a column that appears regularly in the business section of the New York Times. Uh, among his many academic honors, Alan was awarded the Kershaw Prize by the Association, American Association of Public uh, Policy and Management in 1997. And this year he was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Alan's going to be talking today about some research that he's been doing on the economics of uh, ticket pricing. Thanks, Ed. <clears throat> Ed doesn't realize it, but he's indirectly responsible for me making a foray into this field. Uh, the reason is, uh, a couple years ago, I uh, promised my father I would take him to the Super Bowl. The Giants made it. And uh, the Giants said, you know, I did make it to the Super Bowl. And I arranged to get an airplane ticket uh, to fly to uh, Tampa to see the game. And I was all sad except I didn't have a ticket. And it turns out Super Bowl tickets were awfully hard to get. And uh, the list price for the Super Bowl tickets, uh, I'll go into a little bit more detail on this, were uh, $325. And the tickets I bought were $2,500 each. Uh, that, from what I could tell, was the market price. And anyway, just before I left, I thought, gee, this would make a nice column for the New York Times. So Ed helped me to assemble a team of interviewers in Tampa, and we conducted a survey uh, just uh, just before the Super Bowl began. Uh, of, uh, one thing we learned is that fans that are tailgating are very eager to tell their story about how they got their ticket, what they were doing there. Uh, so we had a very high response rate. Anyway, I wrote this up in the New York Times. And the editor of Polestar Magazine, which you see displayed here, saw that article and he invited me to be the keynote speaker at the Concert Industry Consortium in uh, Hollywood, California, where else would it be, um, in February 2002. And I told him that I'd be happy to come, but I really don't know anything about concerts. The only concert I've been to the last five years, by the last ten years, was I took my children to see NSYNC, and the thing I learned at that concert was I need to bring earplugs when I go to a concert, and he uh, uh, assured me that that's not a problem, that uh, I could relay what I learned uh, about a sporting event, and also he could provide me with some data to use for my analysis. And what he provided me with was, I thought, a real treasure trove, and I continue to do research in this area. Uh, Polestar Magazine is the industry magazine for the concert industry. And it's a very well-done magazine, it's a weekly. They have been keeping track of concert prices since 1981. Uh, the way it works is that the venues submit a form to Polestar after each concert is held. And this form lists the name of the band that performed, the name of the warm-up uh, bands that performed, the total ticket revenue, total number of seats that were sold. You can calculate from that the average price for a ticket, they also report the low price and the high price for the venue, uh, as well as the capacity of the venue. And the capacity is actually more detail than you need to know. Uh, but the way that the venue is set up varies depending upon how big a stage the artist wants to have and so on. So they, they, they reported the total, the maximum number of tickets they could have sold uh, for that event. 
uh, as well as who the promoter was and where the concert was held. Uh, and that really was a, a treasure trove. It was 215,000 concerts back in 1981. And uh, I'll be relying on that quite a bit in what I discussed today. So what I'd like to do is talk about the economics of ticket pricing. I'll start uh, at a more general theoretical level, then talk about uh, how ticket pricing actually compares to the abstract model that economists would typically bring uh, to ticket pricing. Then I'll talk about long-run explanations for ticket price growth and short-run explanations. So to an economist, when you're asked uh, how should concert tickets be priced, the answer is obvious. Well, if you want to make the most money you can make, you should price tickets the same way airlines price tickets. We call this price discrimination. Discrimination is a term that uh, usually has negative connotations. In this case, discrimination just means that you should distinguish among different groups of buyers. There are some buyers who are very sensitive to the price and others who are very insensitive. You should try to charge a higher price to those who are insensitive to price. That would maximize the revenue. Now, airlines do this, and you all know this. If you fly on an airline, an airplane, there are probably 50, 100 different prices uh, for, for the seats on the airplane. Obviously, first class sells for a higher price uh, than coach, uh, but also if people uh, buy their ticket relatively early with some strings attached, then they get a lower price than if you buy it at the last minute without a weekend stay and so on. So the airlines have figured out ways to try to uh, segment their market, charge a higher price to those who are less sensitive uh, to prices, whose demand is less sensitive to prices. That's just standard uh, microeconomic theory. Uh, now, I also gave the recommendation that they shouldn't go overboard, because unlike an airplane, they're selling things in addition to the concert ticket. Uh, they sell merchandise uh, at the concert. Actually, merchandise accounts for about a quarter of uh, total revenue from a concert. Um, and the bands, of course, are interested in selling albums, so they have these tie-in sales. Another thing I discovered, which I should have realized, but I didn't think about it in advance, is that the venue gets a fair amount of money from parking spaces, from charging the park in the parking lot. Um, so because of these tie-in sales, you probably don't want to overdo it in terms of making uh, the charging the highest price that you can uh, from each of your consumers. You might want to uh, leave a little cushion in there because you know you get this additional revenue. Uh, well, this is not how the Super Bowl worked. Uh, as I said before, at the Super Bowl, the list price was $325, uh, and the market price was $2,500. So I wrote a column in the New York Times called Seven Lessons from Super Bowl Sunday, where I raised the question of why it is that the NFL doesn't charge a higher price for its tickets. I called up the vice president of the NFL, and I said, uh, why don't you charge a higher price? And he said, no one ever asked him that before. Uh, the only comment here on price is that they were charging too much. And uh, the thing I concluded is the NFL probably knows a lot more about how to price tickets uh, than economists do. Uh, but one thing I think economists would predict is that if the price is set so low, there would be a secondary market. That if the initial price is set way below the market price, some people would sell their ticket in the secondary market for closer to the market price. Uh, and in fact, uh, that's what happened at the Super Bowl uh, based on the survey that it helped me to conduct, uh, about 20% of the tickets were resold. Now, I have to say, I was a little surprised that that number wasn't higher. Uh, the reason why I say that is there was an enormous excess demand for tickets. Uh, at the game, there were literally there were thousands of people who were trying to buy tickets who couldn't for $2,500 each or more. 
But the NFL had a lottery. Uh, I think it was for 500 pairs of tickets and 35,000 people applied. So it was clear that there was excess demand. Moreover, many of the tickets were given out in the lottery, where season ticket holders were just thrown in the giant pool and there was a lottery. If your name came up, you were lucky enough to be sold a ticket for $325. Well, standard economic theory says those aren't necessarily the people who value the tickets most just because they won the lottery. There should be a great deal of, of reselling. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was less than I would have expected. Uh, now, I had a hypothesis why. It's called the endowment effect. If someone receives something in a lottery, they treat it like it's more valuable than if they were to buy it themselves. This is something that psychologists have shown in repeated experiments. So uh, in the survey, we asked, if you hadn't won your ticket in the lottery, would you have spent $2,500 for your ticket? Over 90% of the fans said no. We also asked, and we randomly changed the order, if someone had offered to buy your ticket for $2,500, would you have sold? Over 90% of fans said no. So we came up with this asymmetry between willingness to buy and willingness to sell, uh, which is puzzling to economists, although consistent with this notion of an endowment effect. Now, when I talked about this at the Concert Industry Consortium, uh, a number of people in the industry told me that they thought that football is quite different from concerts, that at concerts, uh, there's a lot more active scalping market. Far more than 20% of the tickets would be resold at the market price. That might well be true. Uh, I don't know about any evidence for that. I hear this repeatedly. Um, so uh, to try to find out, uh, later this week, again with Ed's help and the help of the Survey Center, uh, I'm going to conduct this survey uh, at the Rolling Stones concert in Madison Square Garden where we're going to collect information on how people obtain their tickets and how much they paid for them. Uh, and we're going to do the same thing at, uh, Bruce, at Bruce Springsteen's concert in Philadelphia on October 6th. So if this were scheduled a couple weeks later, I'd be able to tell you uh, how concerts compare. Uh, but stay tuned, because that'll probably find its way into the New York Times column uh, at some point. Um, now, the NFL uh, gave a, a few explanations for why it doesn't charge what it believes to be the market price. Uh, first, uh, they pointed out that uh, short-run profit could be increased by raising prices, but they want to reward the loyal fans. They want to give something back to their fans and to their sponsors. Um, also, it was pointed out to me that 60% of the $4 billion of revenue that the NFL takes in uh, comes from television. So uh, the public image is very important. And they don't want to be perceived as necessarily gouging their fans. Um, even though the market forces uh, are in the direction of charging a higher price. A higher price would clear the market. So I concluded that a pretty good economic model of the Super Bowl is one of a gift exchange, where um, you can think of the service that's being traded, or the ticket, as in part representing a gift. If you receive a gift, well, you're not going to turn around and sell it. And a lot of people said they received their ticket for free from a friend. And in fact, that took my father for free. And I should also I always point this out. I still haven't told my father how much money I paid for the ticket. <laughs> uh, I had this tremendous fear that he would show up. Uh, he showed up at the stadium uh, before me, uh, that someone would offer $2,000 for his ticket and he would sell it. Um, so uh, that, that would kind of uh, interfere with his gift exchange notions. <laughs> um, and in fact, that's what the NFL does, too. I think they think of themselves as giving a gift to their loyal fans and to their sponsors. Now, concerts may well be different. And what I found in concerts 
um, in, in many respects, I think, is similar to the Super Bowl. In some respects, I think, is different. Uh, let me describe some of the trends in the concert industry. Uh, so using the data that Polestar provided me, the 215,000 uh, concerts, uh, I calculated the average price of a ticket. So uh, you should think of uh, the black line here as the total revenue divided by total, total number of tickets sold each year from 1981 to 2001. And the red line for a comparison shows how much prices would cost if they grew at the same price, same rate as the consumer price index. If they grew at the same rate as all prices in the economy. Uh, and you can see that concert prices have been growing faster than uh, uh, other prices, than the overall consumer price index. And you can really see that uh, uh, this has occurred at the high end. Uh, I calculated the average price for the high ticket in the venue and the low ticket in the venue. And I gave more weight to bigger concerts. And where you see a big deviation uh, from the consumer price index is at the high end. Uh, early on, if you look in the early 80s, the high price and the low price were very similar. There are still some concerts where there's not much of a difference between the price for the best seat and the worst seat. Bruce Springsteen, uh, in his entire tour that's coming up, has decided to charge $75 for every ticket. So uh, this is a throwback. It's like the early 1980s uh, when uh, the high price and the low price were the same. And uh, now there's a lot more differentiation. This is often called gold, golden circle uh, prices, uh, pricing more uh, for the better seats. And that's what economists would expect. That's, that, that's consistent with uh, increasing price discrimination, which I'll come back to. Uh, this ne next figure puts the uh, average price in some context. It uh, shows each five years, in blue, how much the average concert price grew and how much the consumer price index grew. And what leaps out at you when you look at this figure is the last five years. This is a theme I'm going to come back to over and over again. Uh, concert prices have grown 62% from 1996 to 2001. The consumer price index increased 12.8%. So there's a large uh, gap where concert tickets are, uh, the prices are growing at a much higher rate uh, than uh, other prices in the economy. Uh, over the longer term, you can see there's been some tendency for concert prices to grow more rapidly than the CPI. So that's when I talk about the long term, that's what I mean. Um, I want to explain why prices were growing faster in the 1980s and early 1990s for concerts than they were for other prices in the economy. Uh, but most importantly, why this spectacular divergence over the last five years. Now, the data set I received was rather sparse. It had the information that I described before, but not much information on the bands. And I was also concerned that the data set was getting better over time. The coverage was improving. So to try to create a, a consistent universe, what I did was uh, I hired uh, a temp to type in information from the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll. This is a book. I would have wrote it over, but it was pretty heavy. About this thick. And it has information on 1,700 uh, uh, bands. Uh, I, I write here from from ABBA to ZZ Top. Uh, and this is the third edition of this book, which is actually quite convenient. It was published in 2001. The first edition came out, I think it was in 1983. Uh, and it's been continually updated. So it includes some very modern bands, many of them that I haven't heard of. So you can be assured it has some modern bands. 
Uh, and it also includes some of the older ones. So this is one way of trying to limit the sample to a more consistent universe. I should also uh, highlight that uh, the bands listed in this encyclopedia are responsible for 80% of ticket sales uh, over this whole period. Uh, so this is not an inconsequential uh, group of bands. Uh, I tried to get an undergraduate to type in these numbers for me, and I couldn't find one. And then I, I, I was desperate, so I turned to a temp, which is a good secret if you're trying to do uh, research. And uh, the temp uh, came to my office, and uh, I described him what I wanted him to do. He went to the computer room. About a half hour later, he came back, and he said, Professor Kruger, do you mind if I ask you why you want me to do this? And I thought, oh, no, he's going to quit. He's just like the undergraduates. And he said, because I'm a professional musician, and I find this fascinating. <laughs> so this worked out really well, and he was quite thorough. Um, and uh, we, we were very careful in checking to make sure that there weren't small deviations in the way the names uh, were spelled and so on. And we merged this information onto uh, the Polestar database. And what we collected was the year in which the band was formed, uh, the gender of the performers, uh, the genre of music. And we have a measure of prominence that I'll return to, where we measured how much was written about the band. So you can think about this in the eyes of the editors of the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, uh, how important were the bands. Now, uh, what I want to show you here in blue is that the Encyclopedia bands look pretty similar to the average band I showed you before. In fact, prices are growing a little bit faster uh, for, the best, uh, for the best bands, for the ones that are listed in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia. Over the last five years, prices for these bands are up 73%. Remember, this compares to about 13% for the Consumer Price Index. Um, now, uh, economists often worry that there's changes in composition, changes in the mix. Maybe there's better, there, there are better bands uh, now than there were before. Uh, Bill Barron, who's here, uh, said to me, well, uh, you know, the music now, I can't understand what the lyrics are. Uh, what the words are, maybe that's lower quality. Uh, and anyway, what I tried to do, I, I've done a lot of sophisticated things, which I won't show you, like calculating price indices for the same band, uh, but it's a lot more fun to show you individual artists. So this is the price, average price each year for the Rolling Stones, and if you don't believe me, you can see it's the Rolling Stones music. There's uh, Mick Jagger. Uh, incidentally, a, uh, I don't know if he graduated, but he attended the London School of Economics. Uh, and you can see he knows something about pricing concert tickets. Um, uh, this shows you Madonna. Uh, I didn't have much Madonna music. This is, this is from Evita. Um, uh, you can see that Madonna's concert uh, prices have been shooting up uh, over the last five years. Uh, there's Elton John. Uh, not as pricey uh, as Madonna or the Rolling Stones. Billy Joel, one of my favorites. <laughs> By the way, I, I should advertise that. I didn't know how to record music in PowerPoint, so my nine-year-old daughter taught me how to do this. <laughs> uh, now, you may know that Billy Joel and Elton John tour together, and the solid blue line here shows you uh, that they charge more when they're together, not quite twice as much. Uh, and also their price has been shooting up over the last five years. Uh, here is uh, Bono from U2, uh, who performed at the Super Bowl last year. Um, uh, Bruce Springsteen. 
Uh, now, Bruce's price is interesting because this year he's charging, as I said before, $75 a ticket. So that's a little bit lower uh, than what he charged in 2001. Uh, I have no doubt that he can charge more and sell out uh, uh, virtually all of the venues where he's performing. Uh, so that suggests that it's not only economic factors that are uh, influencing where he sets the price. Uh, here's Cher. I didn't have any music from Cher. Uh, Aerosmith, who performed at the Super Bowl when I went. Uh, and I wanted to show you Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks is an exception. He uh, prides himself at charging a low price. He says he likes to give a lot back to his fans. Um, and um, you can also see he doesn't give too many concerts. That um, the last few years, there are no data points there for Garth Brooks because he hasn't uh, given any concerts that were recorded in this database, at least. Um, so that might be a supply response uh, to the fact that he makes less money uh, for a concert. He also has other sources of, of, of revenue. Um, now, I chose these artists because their quality probably hasn't changed very much in this period. And I think it would be hard to argue that Cher is approved. I hope you're not putting this video tape up on the web so you can see this. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, so uh, in, in a very real sense, I think this does control for changes in, in, in the quality of the performance. Uh, if I did this for younger bands, like I did this for some of my daughter's favorites, uh, and sing Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, um, then I also did it for Dave Matthews, who I found out as a favorite of my undergraduates, uh, it, it looks very similar. You see, something very distinct happened the last five years. Prices have really shot up uh, over the last five years, even when we look within the same, same artist. Um, now that just showed the average price. This shows uh, for Bruce Springsteen's concerts, April through June of 2000. The, the left of the line shows the low price in the venue and the high price in the venue. Uh, and the red bar there, which looks a little bit like you know, settings on, a, on an amplifier or something, the red bar shows the average price. So you can see at Springsteen's concerts, all but three of these sold out. Uh, he charged essentially the same price. He was charging very close to the maximum. For his current tour, he, he decided he was going to charge $75 for all tickets. So you would think of these, these bars as collapsing, which is pretty much where he was, was before. But one of the things which is most striking is that he had the same price structure in all of these cities. And he's doing that again. So he charges the same price in Atlanta uh, or in Salt Lake City or in New York City. If you were going to go see a baseball game in Atlanta, it would cost a lot less than if you were going to see the Yankees in New York. So there, there's some responsiveness to market forces, uh, which, which are not visible uh, in these concerts. Uh, and I think that's somewhat ubiquitous, maybe not as extreme in Springsteen's concerts. Uh, but it seems like there's less price variability than you might expect, even though over time, this market is beginning to operate more like uh, a standard kind of market where um, uh, you see more price differentiation within venues and, and also across cities. Let me say a little bit about sales. Oh, before I do that, I, my daughter pasted in this music too. <laughs> uh, she's 10 now. <laughs> um, this is uh, total number of tickets that were sold each year from 1982 forward. And this is kind of interesting. The market's been fairly stagnant 
In fact, last year prices fell, uh, the, the number of tickets uh, sold fell uh, to their lowest level in 12 years. Now, I don't want to make too much out of that because 2001 was a recession year and that was probably part of what was going on here. Uh, but this trend definitely looks fairly flat uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. And there's some other data that uh, corroborates this. Gallup does a poll uh, periodically where they ask people, the, the, the data that I saw asked uh, younger people, I think they were probably 18 to 25, uh, different activities that they did in the preceding year, whether they went to a concert, whether they went to a museum, uh, whether they went to a library. And anyway, the number who were going to concerts has been declining in that data set. So uh, I'm fairly confident that, oh, the wrong slide. Fairly confident that the trend has been flat or declining uh, over the last decade. Now, ticket revenue has been climbing. And the reason why revenue has been climbing is because prices have been growing so quickly. But if you look at the last year, in 2001, ticket revenue actually declined. That's because the decline in the number of tickets sold was greater than the increase in the price. Uh, these data look like the industry has become somewhat more monopolized, that there's been a cutback in supply. Right? If you look here at number of tickets sold, the number of tickets sold have been flat or declining the last year. Uh, yet when you look at total revenue, uh, uh, that fell too in the last year. Now, a monopolist wouldn't do that. A monopolist uh, would want to maximize uh, his or her profit. It might have, uh, you know, th this is consistent with a monopolist who got carried away, set the price too high to the point where uh, it cut into supply. So let me uh, recap. What I want to do uh, from here forward is look at explanations for why uh, price growth for concerts has been faster than inflation in the long run, and then particularly over the last five years. Now, it's hard for a labor economist like myself to talk about rock and roll concerts without saying something about the economics of superstars. Uh, there's a classic paper by Sherwin Rosen published in 1981 which laid out the theory of the economics of superstars, although the theory goes back at least 100 years to Alfred Marshall. And the intuition behind the theory of superstars is the following. I suppose you were undergoing heart surgery. You would be willing to pay a lot more to have the best surgeon perform the surgery over the second best. You'd be willing to pay a lot more to have the best surgeon than, say, the fifth and sixth best working together. Uh, since I presume it's only one surgeon who does, does the key work. Uh, so the idea is that there are imperfect substitutes uh, in production and that there's a convex reward function. It makes a big difference to have the best versus the next best. Uh, and another factor in the market for superstars is that the very best can reach a wide audience. So the scale of the market is relevant. The best surgeon is limited by how many people he can operate on in a year, the best musicians are not so limited. They can sell albums to billions of people. Uh, they can perform a concert in a big enough uh, venue where they can have tens and tens of thousands of listeners. Now that's in part because of the change in technology, microphones and so on, uh, which allow them uh, to perform and reach wider audiences. Uh, now if you apply this to rock and roll, uh, superstars are known to a broad audience, and probably a broader audience now, because technology has improved. The improvement in technology differentiates the best uh, from all of the rest. And I thought I would quote from Alfred Marshall here. Uh, Marshall, uh, in a textbook he wrote uh, at the turn of the last century, was trying to explain why it was that incomes for businessmen increased so much 
uh, compared to uh, incomes of artists. And he wrote that the changes are twofold. First, the general growth of wealth. And secondly, the development of new facilities for communication by which men who have once attained a commanding position are enabled to apply their constructive or speculative genius to undertakings vaster and tending over a wider area than ever before. Then he talks about uh, musicians. But so long as the number of persons who can be reached by a human's voice is strictly limited, it is not very likely that any singer will make an advance over the 10,000 pounds said to have been earned in a season by Mrs. Billington at the beginning of the last century. Uh, then uh, there's a little footnote here that Mrs. Billington uh, was an opera singer uh, in Covenant Garden. She is reported to have had an extraordinary voice and was highly paid throughout her professional life, but there is a hint that the 1801 sum, which Marshall was referring to, was high even for her, and no information is given about endorsements. So uh, the idea is that the change in technology, which allows people to broadcast uh, to a wider audience with microphones and speakers, uh, to record uh, uh, albums and CDs and so on, uh, has changed this industry, has changed it so that the very best should be pulling ahead uh, from the rest. Uh, this shows, uh, uh, this is here in part from Bill Barron, uh, who used to be uh, uh, Deputy Commissioner of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is the Consumer Price Index for audio equipment in real terms. So after adjusting for inflation, you can see that the price of consumer audio equipment has been falling like a stone. It's not very surprising. Uh, all electronic computer-related equipment have been declining. Um, but um, uh, it's quite dramatic when you see what's happened uh, to the price of consumer audio equipment. Um, this shows a rather remarkable graph of the share of concert revenue that goes to the top 1% of bands each year. Um, that's uh, represented in blue here. Then above that is the top 2 to 5%. So the way to read this is in 1982, the top 1% of bands took home 20, 26% of all concert revenue. Last year, they took home 55%. So there's been a remarkable shift in income towards the top. The top 5% of bands took home 62% of concert revenue in 1982 and 84% last year. This was an extraordinarily skewed distribution of revenue. Now, this is looking at concert revenue. It's not the income that the artists receive. As best I can tell, though, the income that the artists receive is pretty close to the total concert revenue. Uh, the reason why I say that is I talk to a lot of people in the industry, and they told me there is no typical contract. It all varies depending upon what was negotiated between the manager and the promoter. But to the extent there is a typical contract, the uh, band would typically receive about 75% of the ticket revenue. And then, as I said before, they would make money from merchandise sales, which I'm told is around 25% of ticket revenue. So the artist's take uh, is uh, usually around uh, the value of the total ticket sales. Uh, so there's been this remarkable shift uh, in uh, uh, total revenue going uh, to the top performers. And in case you're interested, how does this compare to the population at large? Well, this is based on tax returns. The top 1% of taxpayers took home 14.6% of total income. So to get some idea of how skewed the distribution of income is for 
uh, musicians for, for uh, these bands is much more skewed uh, than it is when we look at the distribution of income at large. That's not surprising because uh, rock and roll concerts are kind of the, the, the typical uh, industry where one would expect there to be superstar effects where the very best would command a big share of the market. Well, I looked in a little bit more detail for superstar effects and to see uh, if they uh, have grown in importance. And I used this measure that I mentioned before, which was how much was written about each of the bands. And to give you an idea, here is a representative page from the book that I didn't plug over here, uh, which shows a foreigner here at the bottom, up there. Uh, and uh, the band in the upper left-hand corner is Frankie Ford. Anybody ever hear of Frankie Ford? See, this is a very thorough book. One. <laughs> uh, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, anyway, um, we measured in millimeters how much was written about each of the artists. Uh, we had a little debate about whether we should include the picture. Uh, <laughs> then we decided that we should because that was relevant. Um, and uh, 400 millimeters, in this case, was written about Farner, uh, 100 about Frankie Ford. Uh, and we use that as our, as our measure of the star quality. Now, this shows you results from looking at all of the artists. I gave uh, zero millimeters for a band that was not included in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia. Uh, this looks at the relationship between uh, the total revenue that the artists uh, received, and how much was written about them. So this is from a statistical analysis, which is not worth uh, delving into the details of. Uh, but what the bars show you here is, is if we compare an average band to one that has twice as much written about it as average, how much additional revenue? And I measure this in log logarithm of dollars. Um, so it's a standard transformation that economists use. Uh, anyway, uh, the way to interpret this is the answer is big difference. The, the very best uh, in terms of this uh, measure of uh, how prominent the band is, uh, receive a lot more than the average band. Uh, and that gap has been growing over time. But curiously, it hasn't grown over the last 10 years. Now, uh, prices show a somewhat different story. This looks at prices uh, for the 90th percentile, the median band, and the 10th percentile band. And Consistent with what we saw before, the, the, the top bands are growing even faster in terms of their price. And then I did the same kind of analysis. Here I restricted it just to the artists that were listed in the encyclopedia. Uh, and we see that this rapid increase in prices over the last five years uh, is particularly associated with the more prominent bands. The gap has increased uh, over the last five years, but that was also growing in the, in, in, in the 90s. So it looks like there are increasing superstar effects in this industry. Now, in this analysis, I had some additional uh, um, uh, factors that I could look at. And they're kind of interesting in their own right, so I thought I'd say a little bit about them. Uh, the age of the band. The older bands tend to charge a higher price. Uh, now, that makes sense, actually, from an economic standpoint, because you might think of a band as kind of investing in its reputation and building up loyalty while it's young, and then... Um, uh, getting a return on that investment or maybe running down its reputation a little bit when it gets older, so it'll charge a higher price. It doesn't have to worry about building up fan loyalty if they're on their last farewell tour. They might as well uh, charge as much as they can get away with and maximize their revenue. The gender results are interesting, and I have to say they took me by surprise. 
And so uh, some bands were all male, that was the most common. Some were all female, and then some were mixed gender. Um, and the all-female bands actually had higher prices. Uh, this is one of the few times where you'll see that women earn more uh, in, 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 in a particular market. The mixed gender bands had the lowest prices. Now, I was a little bit concerned that maybe this was coming about because I limited the analysis just to the bands in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, and maybe they have a higher threshold for female acts to get into the, into the book. Uh, maybe it has to do with the peculiarities of, of that sample. So anyway, over the summer, Lauren Sun, uh, who worked as my research assistant, drew a random sample of 200 bands that were not listed in the encyclopedia, and then found them on the web, or found most of them on the web, and was able to infer, in most of the cases, the gender. <laughs> in a higher proportion than I would have expected, she was able to infer the gender from what was available on the web. And, and anyway, these results were fairly consistent well what we found, especially concerning the mixed bands, the mixed gender. Uh, they tend to do, uh, do worse. So if you're thinking about forming a band, uh, think about making it all one sex. Uh, the genre of music, uh, these results according to what uh, uh, I think we would have expected. Uh, jazz and pop were at the high end, uh, reggae uh, and folk uh, were on the low end. And I'll come back to uh, genre a little bit later on. Uh, what's age got to do with it? Uh, another thing we looked at, instead of looking at how age affects the average price of band charge, charges, how does it affect the range in the prices, which is an indication of how much price discrimination is going on. Uh, this shows you for Tina Turner's concerts, the ratio of the price for the most expensive ticket in the, in the arena uh, to the least expensive. And you can see in the early 1980s, uh, there was not much of a gap between the price for the most expensive and least expensive seat, and by the late 1990s, there was a big uh, differential, two, two and a half to one ratio. And, and I find this pattern more general. Uh, the older artists tend to have more price differentiation. They spread out the prices more. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I think that takes place. Uh, one is that they have fans who have greater variability in their income or in their interest in the band, so uh, it would make sense, therefore, to price discriminate more because some are less sensitive to price than others. Uh, then I think the second reason is when the artists are young, I think they care very much about building up their reputation and trying to get a following. One way to do that is to have a fairly narrow differentiation of prices. They, they won't be seen as gouging some of the fans. When they're older, they worry less about their reputation. As I said before, and uh, uh, charging more at the high end is one way uh, uh, to do that. Another model that I feel compelled to mention here at Princeton is Bommel and Bowen's disease. Uh, don't worry, you won't catch that. Uh, uh, this is named after Will Bommel uh, and uh, Bill Bowen. Uh, Will Bommel, a former professor at Princeton, and Bill Bowen, a former president of the university. Uh, they wrote a classic uh, book on um, uh, prices in uh, the performing arts. Uh, and uh, they argue that if you have a sector where there's very slow productivity growth, uh, you know, they use the example of performing Mozart, uh, it takes the same number of performers to perform Mozart now as it did 100 years ago. Uh, so the performing arts tend to be a low productivity sector. Uh, now I say modular technological change, uh, because I do think technological change has been vast 
and something that's been overlooked in this area. Uh, but uh, you know, if we think about a standard a standard concert, they would have an amplifier. Uh, concerts tend to be a low productivity sector. Then, uh, if we have other sectors where productivity is growing very rapidly, wages would be growing in those other sectors. There would be some arbitrage between the two sectors, and that would mean that prices would grow much faster in a low productivity growth sector, uh, meaning concerts. Uh, now, I suspect that in the performing arts, uh, this is a very important model, it can explain a lot. I suspect that's not the case when it comes to concerts, because the technology has changed so rapidly, productivity growth uh, might actually have been a lot higher uh, when it comes to, to rock and roll concerts. Then the third model for explaining the long run uh, growth has to do with the demand uh, for uh, leisure. Uh, as society becomes wealthier, people demand uh, more leisure, and they want to do higher quality things with their leisure time. Uh, Robert Fogel, who was president of the American Economic Association a few years ago and a Nobel Prize winner, uh, gave his presidential address to the American Economic Association on the demand for leisure. Uh, he had this chart, which is quite dramatic, and if you read the paper very carefully, you will see no explanation of where these data come from. Um, but it seemed quite believable that the number of leisure hours people have in a day has risen uh, throughout the last century. Uh, leisure is a super normal good. When people become wealthier, they want to spend more of their income, relatively more of their income in leisure. Uh, that suggests that demand for leisure activity should be rising over time, and uh, because demand is rising, the, the price should be rising. Now, this is a little bit inconsistent with the, the, the decline in uh, the number of people going to concerts. Um, but uh, I mention it as a long-run factor that's out there. And it also does suggest something very important. And the Baumolin, uh, uh bowen model suggests something else important, which is maybe it makes more sense to compare concerts to other leisure activities. So this next figure shows you... Uh, in as comparable way as I, I, as I could do, uh, the price of concerts and the price for movies, theater, and sporting events. And because I'm proud of this figure, let me explain to you in a little bit more detail how I did it. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when it computes the consumer price index, has a sub-index for movies, theater, sporting events, and concerts. Uh, to compute this index, they go to the same movie theater every month, and they say, what are you charging this month? And then they look at how prices have changed. They don't ask what movie is being played or make an adjustment for what's being played. The same thing when they go to a baseball stadium or a football stadium, they don't ask who's playing against whom. Uh, they just collect the prices and they see how prices are changing from month to month within the same venue. Um, then they compute a Lesperes index, which is a fixed weighted index. Um, uh, where they uh, change the weights every decade. Um, allowing uh, for a different mix of people going to the venues. Um, now, what I did, because I wanted to compare as comparably as possible, is I computed my own index for concerts. So I did the exact same thing. I looked at the same venues from one, one year to the next uh, to see how prices changed. Um, I could have done this in a little bit more comparable way. I updated the weights each year. Uh, I could have uh, kept them fixed for 10 years. I don't think it'll change things too much. And anyway, uh, the BLS's index includes concerts. I wanted to subtract that out. Well, first I asked the BLS, can you give me the sub-index for concerts? And they said, no, we actually have only, we, we, we've never been able to compute that. We've never computed that. And besides, they said concerts are only 8% of the overall sub-index. 
It's mostly due to sporting events and movies. Um, so uh, what I did was to subtract it out myself because I had my own index, so I subtracted off 8%. Uh, uh, and what's remarkable here is how well they track each other. I mean, this didn't have to look this way. I think it says, uh, uh, it bodes well for my data and for the BLS's data. Uh, if you look from 1981 to 1995, the two series are almost on top of each other. And it's really quite remarkable how close they look. And then the last five years, concerts have diverged from movies, sporting events, and theater. And this shows you uh, every five years. And you can see the last five years using this, this index of concert price growth. Concerts are up 55%. And uh, movies, sporting, and theater are up 24%. So the mystery that needs to be explained is why this 30% faster growth than movies, sporting events, and theater over the last five years, or why the 40% faster growth in the overall CPI. Uh, and let me review some explanations uh, for this. And when I'm done with that, which should take me uh, about 15, 20 minutes, I'll be happy to take some, some questions. Um, so what explains the recent price growth? Well, one possibility is that production costs increased. When I talked to some um, band promoters, uh, that's something that they often raise. Uh, in the old days, the band would just stand on the band and perform. Now they need pyrotechnics. Uh, one of the things I found is these people are great at exaggerating. Um, the NSYNC concert, I was told, uh, required 55 Mack trucks. <laughs> Then I was told that uh, by another band manager um, that uh, the Backstreet Boys uh, required 35 Mack trucks. It was a record. And I said, well, I heard NSYNC required 55 Mack trucks. And he said, uh, well, they couldn't even fit 55 in the stadium. <laughs> uh, so I, I had no idea how many Mack trucks were involved uh, in a concert like NSYNC. Uh, I imagine it is a lot. Now, I'm a little skeptical of this explanation. Right? You can see here. I had no way. I, I requested data from the promoters on what it does cost to put on the concert. They told me they would give it to me, and they never provided it. Uh, but you can see Michael Jackson, uh, his concerts look different uh, now than they did uh, when he was younger. Uh, but I'm a little skeptical that the cost has gone up that much. And the reason why I'm skeptical is the price of audio equipment's gone way down. That makes me think that it must be the case that the price of um, the equipment that the promoters are using, that the band is using, has also declined in real terms, the way that consumer uh, electronic prices have declined. Uh, so that would at least cut in the, cut in the opposite direction. Uh, the second explanation, which I'll spend a lot of time on, has to do with consolidation in the industry. This is an explanation that I used to think was very important, and I've convinced myself that it's really hard to show that it's as important as I used to think, and as much of the ink that's been uh, written about it suggests. Uh, then uh, the third explanation uh, is that there's a complementary revenue source, record sales, and that's changed. And I'll come back to that. Uh, and uh, the possibility that maybe concerts were just underpriced to begin with, now they're uh, reaching closer to what uh, they should be priced at. So let me talk about industry consolidation. The concert industry is really a funny, uh, funny industry to study because there are different parts to it. And the logic to why there are different players still isn't all that clear to me. Um, but you can think of there being independent contractors. You have the band, which wants to perform a service. They contract with the promoter. The promoter arranges with the venue for the band to perform the service. The promoter and the band together set the price. 
Now, my understanding is that this takes place in a joint negotiation uh, between the promoter and the band's manager. By the way, I'll tell you an aside. I got a call a couple weeks ago from the Dallas Morning News, and um, uh, I probably wasn't going to take the call uh, from, from the news uh, uh, paper interviewer, but he said to me, uh, I'm writing a column, I'm writing a story on uh, concert prices, and I interviewed Paul McCartney and David Crosby, but I really want to get your views. <laughs> so I spoke to him for a bit, and he said, uh, David Crosby said, I had no idea my ticket prices were so high. Uh, it's not my fault, it's the promoter's fault. So he asked me what I thought of that, and you know, I didn't really want to contradict David Crosby, uh, but I said my understanding of the way the industry works is that the band signs off on what the prices on what the price is charged. Now, if they want a lower price, of course, it's going to affect um, the money that they receive from the promoter, but uh, they do have final say on what the prices are, which, in fact, is the case. So, fortunately, this guy from the Dallas Morning News didn't quote me contradicting David Crosby. He quoted somebody else, uh, more knowledgeable than I am, uh, contradicting him. Um, so, that's important to know, kind of, how, how the industry works. There's a promoter who's kind of the middleman. The promoter will contract with the venue to uh, put on the concert. But there are other parts of this industry which are really interesting. The um, uh, venue, well, usually, I guess it's the promoter, arranges for a ticket distributor to, to distribute the tickets. Ticketmaster, which you've all heard of, is probably the, is by far the largest. And then there's some uh, uh, um, uh, possibilities for the venue distributing some tickets itself directly, the band distributing some itself directly. It's all negotiated. Um, the, the, the service charge that Ticketmaster charges and what happens to that is also negotiated. So um, there are many different parts to this industry. Uh, the, um, uh, the way the contracts work are like a book contract, where the band is promised a certain amount, but the number of tickets sold increases beyond a certain amount and gets some fraction of that revenue. It's just the way that uh, uh, textbook contracts or other uh, book contracts work. Uh, now, something which has happened in this industry is that the promoters have become very concentrated, and I'll show you some evidence on this. Uh, it used to be that there were a lot of promoters, although each city tended to have a dominant promoter. Beginning in the mid-1990s, a company called SFX began taking over other promoters um, and increased the horizontal concentration in the industry. Uh, then a company called Clear Channel, which uh, is often portrayed as the villain in concert prices, uh, took over SFX and continued taking over other, um, uh, uh, other promoters. So that's horizontal concentration. There's also been vertical concentration. Clear Channel owns 90%, I'm told, of the outdoor amphitheaters in the US. Uh, it has discovered that amphitheaters are fairly, I guess the Romans discovered this before them, uh, are a cheap way of, of building a venue. Uh, plus, I'm also told that the bands like to perform outdoors. Uh, so having 90% of the outdoor venues is, uh, is a major foothold in the industry. Uh, Clear Channel is most known uh, for owning radio stations. Uh, they also own, uh, I'll come back to the radio stations, they also own uh, billboards. That's why I've got the Clear Channel billboard down there. When you drive down 95, you'll notice signs for Clear Channel beneath most of the billboards. Um, I forget the numbers, uh, but it's probably close to 100,000 billboards or so uh, that they own. Uh, 
Uh, now, the major change, and I wanted to talk a little bit about public policy because this is the Woodrow Wilson School, um, uh, which allowed this industry to change, is the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, that was signed on February 8, 1996. Um, anyone recognize this building? Oh, we must. No? A good guess. Uh, that's the Library of Congress. That's where the Telecommunications Act was signed. The only bill ever signed in the Library of Congress. It's amazing what you can learn on the web. <laughs> and then download it right in here. <laughs> uh, prior to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, radio stations were legally allowed to own just 40 stations nationwide. Uh, they could only own two in a single market. The Telecommunications Act of 96 changed many things. One of the things that changed in the radio industry is that the nationwide cap was eliminated. Clear Channel now owns around 1,200 radio stations. Uh, and it also raised the number that could be owned in one market to eight. So the Telecommunications Act permitted consolidation in radios, and that's what happened. Since 1996, 10,000 radio stations have changed hands. Total transactions uh, valued at $100 billion. Uh, and uh, uh, I should also mention there's been some discussion, although I suspect it's not going to be too high on the legislative agenda, uh, to uh, allow more consolidation of televisions and newspapers uh, as well, uh, as has happened in the radio industry. Now, uh, Clear Channel, once it became a domin dominant radio uh, station owner, decided to enter the concert industry. And concentration in concert promoters increased dramatically. This figure shows the four-firm concentration ratio for promoters. And what that is is, uh, is quite a simple idea. You just look at all the promoters nationwide each year. Look at how much revenue they handled. What was the total ticket sales for the concerts that they promoted? You take the four largest ones, and you say, what fraction of the total did they promote? So you can see that using these nationwide figures, uh, the industry was not all that concentrated. The biggest four were, were responsible for 25-30% of concert revenue up until 1996, and then that shot up to 76%. And most of that 76% is due to Clear Channel. Uh, they're 66%. They promote 66% of concert dollars. And I should qualify this. This is just looking at the top artists just those listed in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia. If I did this for all uh, artists, the picture would look very similar. So Clear Channel has become a dom dominant promoter. Uh, now, one common view that you'll hear, you'll see in the press, is that Clear Channel has monopolized the industry. They've raised prices, they've jacked up prices, uh, and they've reduced the number of concerts being promoted, and that's what, what, what it has caused uh, the trends that I showed you earlier. I used to think that that was a very important explanation. Then I went looking for some uh, support for that, and I didn't find that much. Let me start with what, I, uh, what, what does support it, or, what, or, or is consistent with the monopolization. Now, I should point out, it does look like the industry has become more monopolized. The question is why. Is it because of Clear Channel, or is it because of something else? Now, this shows uh, the number of concerts put on by the artists listed in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia. And you can see they're putting on fewer shows. So the best bands are touring less uh, than they had in the past. That's consistent with a reduction in supply. Uh, also, this shows the proportion of seats in the venue that are sold. 
There's a lot of excess capacity in concerts. Uh, this is particularly the case in the big stadium tours. Uh, that's where, if you break this down by the size of the venue, it's the big, uh, big venues, the big stadium, uh, that have seen the biggest decline in, uh, in the capacity utilization rate. So all of that looks like there's been a change uh, in uh, the monopolization of the industry. It looks more cartelized. On the other hand, uh, I spoke to a very savvy manager of several bands who asked me not to use his name, so I won't. Uh, even I have heard of some of the bands that he manages. And he, um, he said that he is kind of skeptical of the view that Clear Channel has become a do dominant monopolist in this industry. In fact, he said, I think there's more competition now than there was before. And the reason why he had this view is that in the old days, he said, each city had its own dominant promoter, had its own cartel. Now, those dominant promoters compete with Clear Channel. So we've gone from having regional monopolies to having one national monopolist. And he thought in many cities where before there was a dominant promoter, like in San Francisco, um, where uh, the House of Blues was the number one uh, promoter, uh, there's now competition, or more competition. Actually, House of Blues was taken over by Clear Channel, so that might not be a good example. <laughs> uh, anyway, what I did was to calculate the four-firm concentration ratio for each of the 24 largest cities. And then I calculated the average in each across those cities. So this gets out whether there's been a change within cities as opposed to change nationwide. And lo and behold, he was absolutely right. This shows the average four-firm concentration ratio in the top 24 markets. And in the old days, in the 1980s, not that old, uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, there was a great deal of concentration among the promoters uh, within cities. So that hasn't changed very much. And then I, I looked at to see whether some of the cities where there's been an increase in concentration and some where there's been a decrease because there's more competition, um, whether prices have grown more uh, in the cities where there's been an increase in, in, in um, concentration. Uh, that's what you would expect if concentration of promoters is being used uh, to generate uh, faster price growth. And I get no relationship at all. This looks across the 98 largest cities, uh, looking at price growth from 93, 94 to 2000, 2001, bracketing the period of that rapid growth in prices. Then the next thing I looked at, which really surprised me, I, I should mention since this is the Woodrow Wilson School, uh, I was called by a, a congressional staffer who said the senator that he works for was very interested in the role that Clear Channel has played in uh, uh, gobbling up radio stations, and uh, he's concerned about what's happened to the price uh, concert tickets. And uh, they've heard lots of stories where uh, they're told that Clear Channel uh, says, look, if you, to the band, if you don't go with us as your promoter, we'll never play your songs on the radio. Uh, and uh, uh, a number of people, including this congressional staffer, have argued that Clear Channel uses its muscle in the radio market to sign up acts. Um, uh, for uh, concert promotion. So I was able to get, and he actually provided it to me, uh, information from Arbitron, uh, where I could calculate for each of the 98 largest radio markets, uh, Clear Channel's share of the radio market. What fraction of FM listeners listen to Clear Channel stations? And you can see it varies from 40% uh, down to 0%. And then I related that to the share of concert revenue that Clear Channel promoted in that area. 
And what I was expecting to find, I could think of many explanations. One that I just described, where Clear Channel uses its muscle in the radio industry to sign up uh, artists uh, for concert promotion. I could think of many uh, reasons why I would find an upward sloping relationship. Instead, I found no relationship at all. These are virtually uncorrelated, about as close to uncorrelated as you're going to find. And it's really a puzzle to me why Clear Channel doesn't use its muscle in the radio industry to sign up uh, acts locally. Now, it is certainly possible, and this is something which is very difficult to test, that they do this at a national level. So uh, they would approach you know, Rod Stewart and uh, imply, uh, if they said it directly, it's probably illegal, uh, imply that if they don't go with Clear Channel as his promoter for concerts in his 75-city tour, his music won't be played all over the country. Uh, and that certainly could be going on. I just uh, have no way of measuring that. I expected to see uh, at a regional level that I would find a relationship between their channel penetration and the radio market uh, and their share of concert revenue. And there, there are some real puzzles, too. If you look at this point here, uh, up there, that's Kansas City. Their channel doesn't have a radio station in Kansas City if they promote most of the concerts. Uh, now, Clear Channel does uh, own a, a very popular venue in Kansas City. So one possibility is the monopoly power isn't coming about from the radio uh, uh, industry. It's coming about from venue, con- venue concentration. So that's another thing that we looked at. Uh, here we, we didn't calculate the four-firm venue ratio, but we calculated the Herfindahl-Hirschman index, which is another measure of industry concentration. Uh, and uh, I, I should, should point out, this is a brand new slide, uh, which Lauren's son uh, calculated for me over the weekend. Um, we don't know who owns the venue. That's a problem. We just know which cities have venues and how important those venues are in each of those, each of those cities. Uh, so what we did was, but what we also did know, Clear Channel almost exclusively used the venue. So we looked each year to say, did Clear Channel promote all of the concerts in that, in that venue? If they did, we treated it as if it was owned by Clear Channel for purposes of making the, the slide. Uh, and we don't see an increase in competition, uh, in, uh, an increase in concentration uh, in venue control uh, across the 24 largest cities. So all of this is kind of pointing in a negative direction uh, for the role of Clear Channel or the Telecommunications Act and so on. Then I have one last nail in this coffin. Um, I looked at prices in Canada. Now, Canada shouldn't have been affected by the U.S. Telecommunications Act. And price growth looks very similar in Canada as it does in the United States. Uh, Prices grew 67% in the last five years. Uh, This comes from the same data source from from, uh, Clear Channel, uh, from uh, Polestar. Uh, Clear Channel does provide data to Polestar, uh, but not the, uh, the, these data come from uh, the Polestar data set. And prices are up 67% in the last five years in Canada. Now, I don't understand Canada well enough to know if there have been some changes in concentration there or changes in the law there. And it's also possible that there's arbitrage across the countries, that the bands say, hey, I can get a lot more money if I perform in the U.S., so they insist on higher prices and higher uh, income if they perform in Canada. I'm a little skeptical that that's what's going on. Uh, so uh, this suggests that there's some other force at work, uh, not unique to the United States. So I've done the same graph for Western Europe, and it also looks similar. Uh, so where does that leave me? Let me uh, discuss an alternative model, which has to do with complementary goods. The um, bands are not only selling concert tickets, but they would also like to sell albums. 
And uh, in the old days, the conventional wisdom was that a concert, concert tour was kind of a lost leader with advertising to sell albums. Um, now, uh, times have changed, and uh, artists are making a lot less money off of albums. There are fewer album sales. Uh, this shows data. Uh, you would think I'd be able to get uh, better information, but this is the total number of albums and singles shipped in billions of units. I don't know why they treat albums and singles equivalently, uh, but you can see there's been a decline over the last uh, last couple of years, and before that, album sales were flat, and the decline is not trivial. It's, it's on the next slide, but it's 10% uh, decline last year or 7% decline the year before. Now, the... Uh, leading explanation for why sales of albums are down is that it's possible to download music off the web. And I uh, gave an undergraduate lecture on some of this material last year. Some of my students are here again, bearing with this lecture for the second time. And uh, in that lecture, I, I thought I would say, because um, uh, I didn't want to ask students directly if they had downloaded music off the web, I said, I, I've heard that some Princeton students know how to download music off the web. <laughs> And everyone, everyone laughed, and then I said, okay, raise your hand if you've downloaded music off the web, and everyone raised their hand, um, which I have to say was an awakening to me. Uh, one student even, he's not here, but one student even emailed me explaining how I, too, can download music. <laughs> uh, so this leads me to an alternative model. Um, and uh, the alternative model involves MP3 players and uh, Napster and so on, uh, where there's less revenue from the complementary good. I'm not going to go over the mathematics here, uh, but this is a standard model in an industrial organization where there's a complementary good, and um, you keep the price low in one market because you want to sell goods in the other market. Because they complement each other, you don't mind selling out your concert, being able to charge even more, uh, because it helps you uh, to, sell take, uh, to sell albums where you also make revenue. Uh, I call this Bowie theory. Uh, David Bowie uh, uh, came upon this idea himself. Uh, this is a quote from the New York Times. Music itself is going to become like running water or electricity. So it's like, just take advantage of these last few years, because none of this is ever going to happen again. You better be prepared for doing a lot of touring, because that's really the only unique situation that's going to be left. Get how it's reminded. It's terribly exciting, but on the other hand, it doesn't matter if you think it's exciting or not. It's what's going to happen. Well, I couldn't say this more eloquently myself, uh, although I'll show you a picture to make it more clear. So the idea is that bands have monopoly power. You know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, they have their own following. Uh, there's no good substitute uh, for Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so uh, rather than having an infinitely elastic uh, demand for his services, he has a downward sloping uh, demand curve. That gives him some monopoly power. Well, we know what a monopolist should do. If a monopolist is only concerned about this one market, the monopolist should set the marginal revenue equal to the marginal cost uh, per ticket, um, and then find the price up on the demand curve. So notice that the, the dark blue line here where uh, it intersects the red line, the marginal cost line, that's where we would expect price and quantity to be if we had a competitive market. Instead, we have a monopolized market, so the price is higher, quantity is lower. Now. Uh, if the band also cares about selling a complementary product or makes revenue with it, keeps its price uh, a little bit uh, lower than the monopoly price by drawing in more fans, well, then it will give more concerts or, uh, or use bigger venues, uh, sell more tickets, uh, and it won't go all the way down on the marginal revenue curve 
because uh, it will take into account marginal revenue that it raises from its complementary good. Uh, then finally, if we take away that other source of revenue, we allow people to download music for free instead of buying it uh, on records or CDs, uh, then the marginal revenue curve would shift in and we would be in a situation more like a standard uh, monopoly. Now, this is a difficult model to test. I wanted to see if there's some evidence for this rather than just say it's a nice story. David Bowie seems to endorse it, but is there some, some support for it? And when I gave this undergraduate lecture last year, some of the students suggested, hey, why don't you look at different types of music? Why don't you look at what happened to a music that old people listen to, like me, like jazz, uh, the kinds of people who don't download music? Or I was also told recently that if you're a real jazz fan, uh, you can tell the difference between music that you downloaded off the web and music that you bought on your CD um, versus uh, music where, uh, where the, the person told me the story said, and if you're listening to Pink, it doesn't matter whether you can, you know, whether there's a little static. Uh, so why don't I look across genre? So that's what I've done here. Uh, and it actually works pretty well. Uh, price, concert prices have grown more slowly for jazz and blues uh, than they have for uh, pop and rock, or rap and rhythm and blues. 23% uh, growth in uh, concert prices for jazz and blues since 1996 uh, versus 74% for pop and rock. So it's consistent with this, with, with this idea. Uh, I want to probe this further, and I want to see if I can get some information on the kinds of music that people download versus what they buy in the store, uh, to see if, 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 if the intuition that uh, the people who listen to jazz and blues are less likely uh, to uh, download music off the web for free. Uh, but I think this is quite suggestive, uh, that uh, uh, there's another force that's causing the bands to act more like single market monopolists, uh, and that has to do with technological change, which makes it possible to pirate music. Then the uh, final slide or uh, graph I wanted to show you uh, comes back to the issue about an undervalued asset. <coughs> Economists don't like to admit that sometimes things might be mispriced. We like to think in terms of equilibrium. Everything is priced uh, as it should be. But it's possible that constant prices were too low to begin with. And this slide shows you the price of concerts and the price of Super Bowl tickets. Now, Super Bowl tickets are clearly mispriced. Now, clearly in the 19, early 1990s, they were uh, selling uh, at a too low uh, level, uh, and they've shot up. Now, they still haven't reached what I consider to be the market price. Uh, uh, in case you're interested also, Super Bowl ticket last year went up to $400. Uh, I take partial credit based on my New York Times article questioning why they didn't charge more, <laughs> making it acceptable. Uh, for them to raise their price. Um, but uh, uh, actually, I think there's a, a, a little something to that. You know, for, for both of these types of events, there are social forces that affect the price, independent of just the pure economic forces. And because of the nature of the goods, the providers worry about those social forces. They worry about their public image. But what's interesting, and I suspect that this is not unique to concerts or to, to, to the Super Bowl, is that those social forces do tend to wear away over time. The restraints on pricing at the market level, uh, over time, does tend to wear away. Uh, and uh, that could be what's going on uh, in concerts as well. So let me just conclude by saying that uh, this is a nice picture of Madonna. Uh, uh, that uh, it, it certainly does seem to me that there's evidence of superstar effects in the concert industry. But if you really want to understand the market, 
Uh, it's important to understand industrial organization. Uh, the legal changes that allow clear channels to dominate the industry uh, are important, but they might be uh, overrated. Uh, I used to think that they were much more important than I do now. Uh, on the other hand, I think one also has to bear in mind what might happen in the future in terms of the legal environment. Uh, antitrust action uh, is a possibility when it comes to uh, future mergers of promoters. Uh, also, uh, there could be revisions to the Telecommunications Act. Uh, and then finally, I would say that it seems to me that the complementarities uh, between concerts and album sales is really uh, is really key. Or at least I would suggest uh, that's that that's the key to understanding uh, this industry. And uh, I'm happy to take some questions. All right, yes. so I have two questions. Uh, you spoke about um, how artists look at uh, their younger years uh, or when they're producing music or whatever as. Uh, a time when they're investing and they see the payoff coming up, coming down the road. And I understand how later on in, a, in, a, in an artist or a band's career, they could see that they have uh, a following or a loyalty, and that's why they could charge more. But the, my que one question is that you hear a lot about fears of longevity with artists when they're younger, like or with groups when they're younger, and that they don't think that they'll be around in 20 years or 15 years. And very, very few groups can make it that far. And I think, and I was curious whether or not you had any evidence of um, of an inclination to gouge when they're at that early stage because we, they don't know how far they're going to make it. My right. second question is just why was the Telecommunications Act passed then, and like what was the the background and what forced it to be that way? Because it seemed to open a lot of room for monopoly or just change the layout of the system. Right. On the on the second, the Congress changed. Um, and Telecom Act was wasn't in the contract with America, but it was something that the Republican leadership had pushed for. Um, and the particular features of it, you know, particularly ra radio, was not viewed as a big part of the Telecom Act. I think when it passed, um, you know, I would look closely at, at the lobbyists and what what, what they pushed for. Um, the main motivation for the Telecommunications Act was it was the first major legislation. Telecom, I think, 60 years. And the idea that we can have more competition in cable, we allowed phone companies to compete, in, in, which, which doesn't seem to happen, at least not in Princeton. Um, uh, I think that was a major motivation. Ch changes in the technology industry kind of, uh, dictated revisiting some of the regulations. Um, on your first question, I'm, try I'm trying to remember, there was a quote. Led Zeppelin. Uh, Led Zeppelin has a book where um, in it there's a quote which says, make it as fast as you can, because it's not now I'm paraphrasing. And there is like make it as fast as you can. Because it's not clear how long you know you're gonna be able to make money in this business. Uh, it's a really interesting question what the best strategy is for the band. And one of the things I'm struck by is they, they, they seem to do it almost blind, in that they, they really don't know. Um, what is the right to the charge? And, and little effort goes into it. It's really kind of shocking to me. Um, because there is data to, to the, the, the data exists to try to, to do a better job. Uh, Ticketmaster sells 90 million tickets a year. Really remarkable kind of set of data that they have. And uh, if the bands were really interested, I think if the managers were really interested, they could do a much better job trying to model what the right strategy is. Um, I, and, and this is something that I want to look at more with these data, which I haven't done yet. 
Um, a band like the Dave Matthews Band seems to show a lot of restraint in setting prices. Now, he's not an older, he's, I'm sorry, he's not a younger band, but he appeals to young people, which is kind of remarkable. And uh, I think his popularity is probably in part because he showed restraint in his pricing. Now, I also suspect that you'll see big growth in his prices now that he's as popular as he is. Uh, a number of people, when I spoke in, um, at this event in Hollywood, California, said they think that the young artists, they, they just can't believe that Britney Spears charges what she does for a concert. Um, and they said to me that she's not going to develop a loyal fan base. In fact, somebody put it to me quite graphically. He said it won't be long before she's signing a contract with Hugh Hefner uh, because she'll pretty much be out of uh, the concert market. Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but I think it is really an interesting question. What is the right strategy that they should use? Um, there's another part of this, which is that, you know, the life of the band, and there, there are forces that cause the bands to implode or to break apart, which are probably related to economics, but probably more social, too. Um, you know, they're not just maximizing their income. If they were, the Beatles would have stayed together. So, um, you know, that's probably something else that they should take into account in, in setting the prices. Um, one of the claims in the industry is that there's much more short-runism that the, the changes in the radio market, again, and I have no idea whether this is true, that uh, Clear Channel has made it such that there's not much investment made in the bands. Uh, they either sink or swim very quickly. It's very hard to gain entry. Which and that's as opposed to like older times when there was like a, a drive for record labels or for things to to really build up bands and to promote them and advertise them? Is that what the that, claim is? That, 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 that's a claim that's commonly made. Okay. That's correct. And I, I don't know whether it's actually accurate or not. Um, I think it'd be an interesting thing to look at. Um, now, one reason why that might have changed is because of the, uh, uh, not because of concerts uh, or radio, but because of what's happened in, uh, in with the web and CDs and the fact that uh, record uh, albums seem to be doing much uh that, that seems to be a completely different type of industry now. And maybe that doesn't subsidize the development of the artists. Um, that, that seems plausible to me. And I can see another reason, by the way, that cuts in the complete opposite direction. The web should make it possible to reach fans at very low cost. You know, it should lead to more diversification. And uh, that hasn't happened. I mean, it's clear that it hasn't happened. And it's also clear that more and more of the revenue is going to the very top. So... Um, um, you know, it might happen in the future, it hasn't happened yet, but you would think that that would lower the cost of entry. Because, you know, my daughter could, ret could, could record an album now, she knows how to do that. Um, and um, uh, it, it would be much easier for a startup band to, to reach its own following if it could. Yes? Um, I'm not entirely sure this is the case, but I had the impression that uh, over the past few years, the largest grossing acts have typically been. Or the risk of attending some dino tracks, you know, Crosby Stills and Nash, or, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, Rolling yeah, Stones. Rolling Stones. And so I'm wondering if, if part of the growth in price of tickets it might have something to do with the demographic of concert goers. You know, so if you have more active concert goers, top acts are older acts. Right. Is that possible? And that, that would still allow your comp period 
to happen because they're not putting out the records. They're, you know, they're just going off the floor. Right. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, that's quite plausible. I don't think that that's going on for two reasons. One is that if you look at the, um, the kid bands, you know, Britney Spears and then Sing, the Backstreet Boys, they follow the same patterns I mean, with, with a vengeance. And, you know, it's possible that it's the parents taking the kids to the concerts and the parents have more, more income. Um, but it seems to me that when you look at the, when you look at the groups that teenagers themselves go to, you know, by themselves, it, it shows the same explosive growth. In fact, more so. Some of that is probably because those bands became more popular and picking up the popularity of that. Um, but it seems fairly ubiquitous, not just uh, the older acts uh, that are uh, uh, making uh, all the revenue. You are right, though, that, that the biggest grossing tours you know, have been the Rolling Stones. Uh, well, Ed Sink was up there, and um, the, yeah, there's certainly some of the older ones kind of getting back together. Now, some of that, I think, is also related to kind of relatively low supply. You couldn't see them before, so there's pent up demand to see them. Uh, but it's a fairly ubiquitous result of what's been going on. And you can see that also you can, in, in the slide that I showed, which showed the median price. That also shows that, that, that acceleration. Not as much as at the top end, but that acceleration in the last five years. Almost all the train lines for um, uh, ticket prices showed a bump in the mid-1990s, regardless of whether it was a high or low in the What was that? There, uh, that's a blip. Here's in almost, almost everything. <laughs> what happened? What I happened don't know. Then? I don't know. Uh, and I think it appears in the good going on that. I think it is. I, I think it appears in the media. Let me see if I can find it. I asked about that one, and I didn't get a good explanation. Sometimes that happens in data, I guess. Um, you can see it to a small extent here. Yeah, so, so it's not just you know an outlier. You know, it's not just a few outliers. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It's the short answer. Uh, but um, you know, that was the time in the labor market stayed in war, even in the recession of 
Um, and it's a very, very eclectic definition. It also has uh, 200 professional wrestling matches. Um, it had basically whatever goes out in tours. It had a few touring Broadway shows. And I tried to throw those out. There were 215,000 uh, performances altogether, and there were probably about 1,000 or so which weren't concerts in any, by any stretch of imagination. So I tried to throw them out. Oh, it had Flip Wilson. In the early days, it had Flip Wilson, Bill Cosby, Jerry Seinfeld. You know, great acts, <laughs> but they weren't concerts. So I wasn't 100% sure I got them all out with 215,000. So that was another reason for trying to limit it just to uh, the bands that were listed in the encyclopedia. Yes? I'm wondering if there's another part of the organizational factor here. And I, and I just wonder if, if the bands have the kind of autonomy that you're ascribing to them. Somebody like Springsteen is obviously a very different case. He tries to control many aspects of his tour, ticket prices and so on. And he has a long history of doing that as well. But it's my understanding that for much of the history here, maybe the last few years uh, are different, but for much of the history that you're showing here, the record companies were actually controlling much of the concert market by underwriting uh, costs uh, and trying to use the revenue to recover the enormous advances that they were giving some of these bands to sign uh, with the label. And, and it's my understanding, uh, I don't know how, how this corresponds to your findings with the, the Hollywood gang and, and the Polestar data, but it's my understanding that the record companies had a lot of influence on the entire economic picture of uh, touring, including possibly um, uh, ticket prices. I just wonder how that corresponds with your right. uh, That's interesting. Uh, actually, no one has brought that up to me before. People, when I, when I, when I gave this presentation in, um, uh, to, for Polestar, um, you can see, there I am giving it. <laughs> I, I believe you. On the inside, they had a worse picture where I was going like this. Um, <laughs> People didn't bother, you know, they, 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 they weren't, there was no inhibition about telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about, um, especially by a couple people from Third Channel. Uh, nobody brought up the record industry. So, it, it, you know, that may well be. I was a little surprised that, now that I think about it, that no one did say anything about it. Uh, I spoke, to prepare for this, I asked Polestar, uh, the, the editor of Polestar is a wonderful person, and I told them I really would like to understand the industry before I talk about it, can you arrange some interviews for me? So he, he arranged for me to talk to um, the head of Clear Channel as well as uh, um, uh, uh, one of their major competitors with the losing market share, as well as, uh, I said I'd like to talk to some band managers. And he arranged for me to talk to a couple band managers who were really interesting. And then I said, uh, and I'd also, you know, as long as I'm doing this, I wouldn't mind talking to an artist. And he said, well, they're all airheads. <laughs> um, so I, I might be exaggerating in some sense how much market power they have, because it is a joint negotiation. And it may just be that the promoter says, hey, this is what we can do for you, and they take it. Uh, but they do have the opportunity to say no to it. And they do have to sign on the dotted line and say that they accepted those terms. And um, you know, my, my understanding especially at the top end, which is what's driving a lot of the price growth, is they do have a fair amount to say on, on the prices, even though David Crosby says he, he doesn't. I mean, it's convenient for him to say that he doesn't. Well, when you say they have to sign off, I mean, does, the, you know, does Keith Richards and, yeah. and, and... The manager, the band so, manager on their behalf. So maybe Crosby wasn't... Uh, oh, he personally probably was not, but he, 
No, he does. He is responsible for his band manager. I mean, his, 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 well, his manager, he hires his manager, his manager acting on his behalf. You know, his manager is his agent. So to say that the artist has nothing to do with the prices, uh, w w which, which he said, I think, is, is not accurate. Uh, by the way, this article is very funny because they, they, the, the um, guy who wrote it was not too happy that prices were going up as much as they are. As an economist, I try to be neutral about things like that. And he um, uh, uh, gave Paul McCartney a hard time because McCartney's concert was $250 at the high end. And McCartney said, and he, I'm sure he knew, he said, well, how much is Mick Jagger charging? How much are the Stones charging? Uh, it was $350. And he said, well, go give Mick a hard time. <laughs> he said, and I thought this was wonderful economics, uh, Paul McCartney said, we sold out in 12 minutes. We're not twisting anybody's arm to buy our tickets at $250. You know, which is absolutely right. Um, but it is also the case that he, he probably agreed to the price, or his manager agreed to $250 for I threw out in, in, in the analysis, I also threw out benefit concerts, which Paul McCartney gives and so on. Um, but it seems to me if you buy a very expensive ticket for a benefit concert, you're, 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 you're making a, a charitable contribution. Yes? Yes? Uh, the Clear Channel uh, information was pretty fascinating. And uh, especially the fact that uh, very little in the way of correlation emerged from the data as, as you presented it. I wonder if um, there might be more to look at in the Clear Channel radio picture, for instance. Uh, the uh, information that you presented it uh, showed their total market penetration. FM. F FM only. Okay, so the top radio phenomenon is excluded from that picture. What, what do you mean by the top radio? Well, the issue, the issue is, um, to what extent does Clear Channel uh, dominate communication to a specific audience? Right. Um, it's something uh, maybe beneficial to look at their uh, share of voice to, say, the rock audience. Right. In a given market. Right. You know, do they control the top one or two uh, uh, voices to a specific uh, music demographic? And to the extent that, say, they control 50% of voice to that audience, I think that might be the only place that you find um, something to emerge from that picture, which is really baffling. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, we, we do know what kind of stations they are. For, for, for all of the FM stations in the 100 largest markets, I think 250 now, we know what's, what they play. There, there's a category, category that um, Arbitron rating assigns to the stations. Now, I've done it looking just at music stations. I felt more comfortable showing you all stations because, of course, the station could choose what it, what it plays. You know, it could switch to, to all sports all the time, or it could be news, or it could be uh, business news, or it could be music. So to some extent, that seemed to me uh, it's kind of an outcome um, variable. You know, Clear Channel is choosing what kind of programming to use. So that's why I use the broadest. And if that doesn't quite persuade you, which doesn't entirely persuade me, let me say two other things. Uh, one is that I also, um, well, a, a big difference, a lot of the variability is coming from having no station at all versus having stations in the area. 
So one of the things I did is I also looked at just fraction of stations, fraction of stations in the listening area that they, that they own. And then the third thing I did is probably what you were suggesting, which is to look at their share of radio. Uh, at one point, I think we might have done rock and roll, but it was certainly of, of music stations. And again, we found this baffling pattern where there is no relationship. So I, I suspect now, by the way, I should uh, could also tell you, the Justice Department called me up because it's part of, part of the regular monitoring. Since this is the Woodrow Wilson call, I should talk about public policy. Part of the regular uh, monitoring of the industry, as they, they said, uh, they were looking at uh, the connection between radio and, and, and concert industry. And they had uh, heard about my speech at the, the uh, Concert Industry Consortium. So they asked for a copy of that, and they asked me if I was doing anything that was relevant. So I told them about what I was doing and about those figures. So I wrote them a memo describing what I, what I found. Um, it, it was a very interesting conversation I had with them, too, because they also brought up the issue of scalping. And they said, well, maybe you don't really have the best price measure. Maybe you don't have the price to the consumer. Maybe there's so much scalping that takes place or used to take place that what's happened now is that the artists are getting the money that the scalpers used to get. Uh, I'm skeptical of that because of what I learned at the Super Bowl. But that's why we're going to do the survey at those, at those two concerts that I mentioned. Um, a- anyway, they were very interested to see what I found. Um, and um, I asked you know, whether this conversation that we had was uh, confidential. And they said, no, I can describe it if I wanted. Uh, at, uh, so I, I am. Um, <laughs> uh, they said, if I do describe it, I should say it's just part of the regular monitoring of the industry, which I said. Um, so anyway, getting, getting back to Clear Channel, to, to the extent that they're playing a bigger role, as people often say, it has to be, I think it has to be at the national level. It has to be that they're signing up several city tours. Now, they are doing that. They are also signing up some local ones. I haven't looked. I can look, I guess, with the data I have to see how it breaks down. With Rod Stewart, I think it's all national. With some other artists, it might just be a few cities. Uh, and they use other promoters in other cities. So I, I can see how that uh, how that breaks down, um, but I, I think that to find a big role for them, it, it's going to have to be that they're using their national network. But one other thing I should say about them is it's not obvious to me they're acting like monopolists because they're losing money too. Um, so it may well be that what they're doing is unsustainable, um, and that the either market forces have, have kind of put them in a difficult situation or they've made they, they've made mistakes. It may be that there's some grand strategy that they have that I'm not aware of. But in order for it to be monopolization, it has to be predatory in the sense that they're overpaying right now to sign up all of the bands. And then later, when they knock out all their competition, um, then they'll pay the bands less. Because part of this is there have been lots of stories of them paying exorbitant sums. Well, as an economist, I should say exorbitant. Of paying larger than the sums have been in the past to the artists and bidding up. The, the, the advances, the fees that the artists are getting, and um, uh, and, and actually losing money because they're paying so much for the acts. So that would only make sense in, as part of a kind of a longer run strategy, where they're trying to knock everyone else out of competition. Then they're going to turn around and lower the fees that the bands get. I asked a couple of band managers if they were worried about that, and they said no. They said, "What well, you know?" I, I think University of Chicago economists would say, which is that there's a lot of entry. And if, if they start to screw us later on, well, we'll promote the bands ourselves. Or it's not that hard to be a promoter. Um, so 
you know, the more I looked into this, it just seemed to me unlikely that they had that much market power, that they could um, uh, be controlling the prices. It, it's possible. I won't, wouldn't roll it out, but it, it's certainly hard to pin it down. Um, and, I, and I was really surprised. I mean, the, the um, congressional staffer who gave me the data on arbitron ratings was really hoping it would show something. Um, and you know, sometimes it works out you disappoint. <laughs> um, that was something that I was expecting. Good. Thank you.